You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So I wanted to let you all know, in case the audio sounds just a little bit different today, that Her Money is on a field trip. Yes, Kelly and I, we crossed town to interview the wonderful guest that I am going to introduce all of you to in just a moment. Today, we are really excited to bring Stephanie Rule into the conversation. Steph is an anchor for MSNBC Live, the former anchor and managing editor of Bloomberg TV. She was also the editor-at-large of Bloomberg News, and prior to her career, she spent 14 years working in finance, and you must have started when you were like six. Four, actually. Yeah. Welcome, Steph. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, I have wanted to have you on the show since it must have been close to two years now because I know you just marked the two-year anniversary of your MSNBC show. Congratulations. Thank you. You made a comment about remembering something Ivana Trump had said about marrying somebody who could buy you as many dresses as you want, and you decided at the ripe old age of maybe 12 that you were going to earn enough money to buy as many dresses as you wanted yourself. And I just thought, this woman is spectacular. we got to get her on the show. Thank you so much. For me, financial independence is so important. And not that having money is better than not having money, but it just gives you the ability to make more choices. And when we talk about all the stresses women or men face, the more you can make a decision not based on the fact, I've got to pay my rent at the end of this month. You know, when we talk about women who are harassed or women Mm -hmm. who are in bad professional situations, when they don't have the ability to make a better choice because they have to put food on their table or because they have to make rent, it compromises them. And I had the benefit of growing up with two amazing parents, and my mom stayed at home and took care of my sister and I. And I can remember being four or five years old, driving my dad to the train station and looking at him and looking at her and thinking, I want to go where he's going. Not in any way discounting that my mom stayed at home. And trust me, you and I were just talking about our kids not getting to see my kids this morning or walk them to school or take them home from school is a huge weight on me. But being financially independent, I can remember from being so young, was so important. And I just want anyone, but especially women, to know when they make the decision to stop earning, that's a decision. And it was my grandmother who actually told me, you always work for someone. And whether it's the person who you share a house with, you share a bed with, or a boss on the outside, you have to know that the person who controls the money has a lot of control. And so I've sort of known my whole life, as much as I wanted to have a family and all sorts of things, I wanted to be in a position where no one could hold money over me, not my spouse and not a boss. Smart woman, your grandma. 
Many women, our grandmother's generation, worked out of necessity, not because they wanted to be career women, whether it was because it was post-depression or because their husbands were serving in the military. They had to go to work to support themselves. And it was sort of that next generation, our mom's generation, where many women had the benefit. They could say, I'm going to stay at home. And we just have to know that's a choice we're making. I'm a few years older than you and have watched many of my friends put their kids into college and go through the experience of saying, now what? Women with law degrees and MBAs and who had wonderful careers but decided, I'm going to take a step back, I'm going to be at home, and a lot of them regret it. Well, part of it is the job structure in most jobs is just not welcoming to those who want to have a family. And if you think about women sort of on that mid-level, tell me many careers that women could afford to pursue and at the same time raise their children. We don't have a structure. There are not jobs out there that you can be proficient in and also raise your kids. You could say, oh, be a teacher. Be a teacher. Teachers don't go home at 3 p.m. They're working until 6 at least. And they're grading. My parents were both teachers. And and they're grading papers. Mm -hmm. So when you say, oh, just get on a teacher schedule, well, what if you work at a school that's different from where your children go to school and you don't have the same schedule? In the United States, we don't have affordable child care. And that's what takes so many women out of the workforce. So as happy as I am when I hear political leaders talk about, well, now we're going to make sure we offer 12 weeks maternity leave or Husbands can take parental leave. That's great. But if you think that parenting begins and ends with 12 weeks, you're kidding yourself. The first 12 weeks is when your mother is coming to visit or a mother-in-law and you have help. It's when your kids are actually in school. The older they get, the more complicated. So when you look at so many women who did leave the workforce to take care of their children, many decided to do it, but many said, I can't afford it. Childcare in this country is so expensive. It is a problem that we have, unfortunately, yet to solve. I want to take a step back, though, and talk about finance and learn a little bit about what drew you to Wall Street and finance originally, because not a common choice for women to make then or now. For me, it was almost accidental. Um, I went to Lehigh to get my undergrad degree, and I studied abroad for a long time. I was studying in Kenya, Guatemala, and Italy. And when I was living in Italy, I knew that I wanted to stay abroad and I didn't have any money left. And so I thought, how am I going to get a job here? How can I stay? And so I thought, banks, they have banks all over the world. So I wrote letters to Lehigh alumni to try to get a job overseas. And I got a summer internship with Merrill Lynch and I was hoping to work in Europe, but alas, they said, no, you have to come home to New York. And I thought, you know what? Fine, I'll I'll make my way home. So I spent my summer between my junior and senior year at Merrill Lynch in some, the same internship we've all had in any industry, some back office, filing, documentation, never see the light of day internship. But early on in the summer, I went and, I'm not exaggerating, just delivered a package onto the fixed income trading floor. And a trading floor and a newsroom are very, very similar. High energy, you know, adrenaline-driven, everyone there. News that happened overnight overseas directly impacts what everyone is doing that day. And I just loved it from the moment I set foot. And I met two guys uh, who traded interest rate derivatives. And, you know, I made that proposition, hey, if I come in early before my internship and I, and I stay late, can you teach me how this works? And they said yes. Uh, and I spent my summer interning at Merrill, and these guys helped me a lot. And then I went and interviewed with all the banks for their sales and trading programs. And most banks, and this is a huge problem, not just for women, but kids who don't go to the top five schools that banks recruit from, you can't get in. But because sort of I had that unconventional 
resume where I traveled so much and I'd, I'd had a lot of different jobs uh, going into it, I ended up uh, getting a few job offers. So I went to Credit Suisse right out of undergrad. And as soon as I started at Credit Suisse, someone had given me just a few pieces of advice. Because again, I really didn't know that much about finance. And um, I was definitely at the bottom of my training program. And someone said to me, whatever you do, don't go to the Christmas party, don't ever get drunk at a work function, and always go home by midnight. Do those three things and get yourself out of the training program and onto a trading floor where they need you as soon as you can. And so I took that advice. And one of those pieces of advice was bad advice, which mm -hmm. rushing, rushing to get out of a training program. And the training program, having two years, whether it's at a news organization or a bank, when you're offered to be in a training program for two years, take it. It's school for two years while they are not asking you to produce any revenue. But so many ambitious young people are racing, racing to make money, racing to get ahead, so ambitious. And so I was. And as soon as I saw there was op an opening on the corporate bond desk, I jumped on it. And what I figured out there, not again, not that I knew that much about economics, was figure out a way to become indispensable. Mm -hmm. And as tragic as this sounds, uh, the way I figured it out, I knew that all those guys in sales and trading wanted to take clients out every night of the week. So I figured out how to get reservations at the hottest restaurants in New York City. I walked the streets of New York. I read Time Out magazine. I read uh, the New York Times. I made friends with every mm -hmm. maitre there was. But for me, my hook was every time I made a dinner reservation, I asked that salesperson or trader, or I, I demanded, I want to go. go to the dinner. And so quickly, I got to meet all the clients. I got to learn the product. And this was in the early stages when credit derivatives were first born. And someone had said to me, Pursue an area in finance that no one else is in. Because if you end up in plain old equities or plain old investment banking, you're going to be going up against guys who have been in that business for 20 or 30 years. Do something that no one else has done, and then who will have done it before you? I think the same <laughs> advice could apply to women today. Mm -hmm. You know, you find those niches in STEM careers where there just aren't enough women, and they're desperate to hire more. Where there's not a boys' club that you have to break into. Go somewhere where there is no club. You create the club. Absolutely. And so for me, I was uh, I started in credit derivatives uh, covering hedge funds, and I sort of rode that wave at Credit Suisse where I stayed for six years, and then I left and I went to Deutsche Bank, and I uh, helped run that business at Deutsche for eight years. I want to talk about the world of finance for women today, but before we do it, I just want to switch gears to remind everybody that her money and conversations like these are brought to you by Fidelity Investments because together we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat. And that means knowing what you owe, knowing what you own, how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup at least once a year. From understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are very happy to be talking with MSNBC's Stephanie Rule. But doesn't that amaze you that so many women don't understand the basics of finance? And it's not because they don't have the ability. Women are actually, when they're girls, more proficient at math than I men know. are. But traditionally, we give that financial power because we look at our fathers or grandfathers to the men in our lives, and we shouldn't. You know, when you look at businesses where men make more money than women, finance is the perfect example. Do you really think that guys who play lacrosse in college are better at working at banks than women are? No. 
It's just that a lot of guys who played college lacrosse helped the next generation of guys who played college lacrosse get into that business. And there are tons of women who are great in these fields. Look at women who sell advertising space. That's the same skill set as women who sell anyone who sells equities. You have to just stop thinking about this. You've got to see it to be it environment and say, well, I mustn't fit in here. There's no other women in finance. Be that woman. So how would you start if you're sitting at Lehigh today or maybe not one of those top five colleges and you think, yep, the sales is and trading floor is the place for me. I want to get into, I want to I want to work on Wall Street. How do I get started? Be unconventional. The best thing that's happened right now in the world of social media is the barriers of entry have dropped. So use media as an example. YouTube channel. You know, when people say they want to get into financial journalism, start writing about it. Start or start doing something. talking about start it. Start talking about mm-hmm. it. And those doors will open up. And employers are looking for unconventional hires. Right? I'm not patting myself on the back, but I was definitely the wild card hire at Credit Suisse. And I'm not joking, I was definitely the lowest in my original test scores when I joined my training program because I didn't have the experience. But I promise you, when I was 26, there was no one out of my training program who was more successful than I was. And hiring people that are out of the box can help you go so far. I did very much the same thing. I worked at Dean Witter before I was in financial journalism, and I talked myself into a job in equity research by telling a few analysts that they should have me around because I could write their reports. I had a job in a week. And that's it. So many times we sit and we're waiting for permission. We're waiting to get picked. And I'm not saying everything should be networking all the time. The first thing you have to do is be good at your job. Because if you really are BSing your way, eventually you will get caught. But if you really nail it at your day job, if you are getting the best scores and then have the smarts to network and use every angle that you can, people are looking to hire those creative voices. You live day to day in the world of political news. Right now. Right now you do. And yet you have made space on your nine o'clock show for a segment called Money, Power, Politics. Why is the money so important? Because that's how people vote. Everyone out there wants to be financially secure, physically safe, socially free. All of us. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, your religion. And people vote with their pocketbooks. When the financial crisis happened, people in this country were gutted. And the people at the top, it worked out for. And I remember in 2016, I was working at Bloomberg when President Obama gave his State of the Union address. And he said, anyone who says we haven't had an extraordinary financial recovery is peddling lies. And I remember when he said it because I thought, no, you're wrong. If you live on the coast, if you work in technology, if you're an executive uh, at an auto manufacturer, it worked out. But if you're not someone who owns stocks, and that's half the country. More than half the country. Well, then asset prices rising didn't do anything for you. And that actually, I believe, gave rise to the forgotten American, the Trump voter, who said, what about me? Well, I think it was the same person that was the Obama voter in the very beginning saying, what about me? People are looking for change. I pulled some numbers yesterday for a talk that I'm giving next week. 89% of people who make over $100,000 a year are in the market. 21% of people who make $30,000 a year, right? That's why we're not all feeling recovered. Look at some of the tech companies, look at Amazon. They have created overnight billionaires out of executives and some of their workers, their lowest paid workers, need to be on federal assistance. 
when Walmart is one of the most successful companies on the planet and they've got employees who are on food stamps, there's a huge disparity. And so we talk all about how extraordinary these tax cuts have been, but it has to be more than we're just hoping for trickle-down economics. There have to be some sort of lever that's going to say, we need to do something to not just help people survive, but to help them thrive. You are a mom of three. What do you want your kids to know before they get into college, before they enter the workforce, so that they'll be able to navigate what will very likely be an even more difficult financial scenario then? Before anything, I want my kids to be respectful and feel respected. And one thing that I think that I learned in the financial crisis is how important culture and respect are. When the financial crisis happened for people in banking, many people thought that they loved their careers. And then when the bottom hollowed out, they realized so much of the culture was just about financial incentives. And guess what? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be rich. We would all love it, and, and we shouldn't vilify it, but actually being kind to those around you, being respectful, will help all of us go so far. You could interview a CEO 10, 15 years ago, and if, they, if you said, what are the most important qualities? They might say strong, I don't know if they'd say tough, strong, tough, uh, even keeled. Now, being a good listener, and being thoughtful, those are the leaders of tomorrow. When you look at CEOs like Mark Benioff, who says, put the quality of work, make sure people feel great about where they are. A leader like Mike Bloomberg, yep. who treats his employees so well. That's so important. And for my kids and their financial future, I don't want them betting on one thing. If they have only a long-term goal that I have to make this much money, I have to be so secure, that's never going to work. But if they know... I need to have enough money in my pocket to get through the day and not blow that money. I want to save money. I want to go to bed with money in my pocket so I can wake up secure. Isn't it better to wake up knowing you can feed yourself and feed your family and pay your rent rather than blow it on anything? Stephanie Wu, thank you so much for doing this. You're fantastic. And right now, we are going to your questions, our mailbag segment. Our producer, Kelly Haltgren, who represents our millennial voice, has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel, welcome. Hi, Jean. Thank you. So what you think? I mean, I love the conversation about how she approached her career in financial independence from a very early age. I was brought up by two full-time working parents who had the attitude of wanting to go to work, not needing to go to work, which mm -hmm. is... We're so grateful for that, of course, but it really cultivated that same drive in me. And I also was brought up by a woman who was insisting on financial independence from day one. Yeah. But I also have girlfriends who've told me that that wasn't the case for them. No, and, and I don't think my mother ever insisted on it for me, although I think she recognized very early that I wasn't going to stop working as mm -hmm. I, as I recognized fairly early that, that, um, taking a step back from the workforce after I had kids was not, um, not really a choice that I was comfortable with. There's a, an old story my mother tells about going in to see my second grade teacher when she was very, very worried about my terrible, terrible handwriting. And oh. which was a concern and, at that point. And now, of course, it's not. We don't even teach kids cursive. But no. at that point, it was a concern. And my second grade teacher, this wonderful woman named Mrs. Christensen, told my mother, don't worry. She'll have a secretary. Oh. 
Yeah. Snap, snap. We, exactly. Wow. Yes. I love that. And Mrs. Christensen, by the way, was yeah. probably 75. So, okay. you know. A, a woman after all of our all of our hearts. Uh, I love that. You have beautiful handwriting now. I have terrible handwriting now. I wasn't going to say terrible, but it's... You, you said beautiful, it's which legible. is just I a lie. I think it's pretty, but it, no, it's not a it, lie. No, it, it's, 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 it's your handwriting. It's distinctive. It's, it's yours. You know it's Jean Chatsky. We do not have to discuss this on the air. Let's go to our questions. We, okay. We get questions just for our new viewers. We take questions from jeanchatsky.com. That's where we have a little box on the website. You can send us a question anytime you want. Kelly will go through them and here we go. Here are a few. Our first question is from Annie. She writes, I'm in human resources and I love that I get to shape the benefits package for our employees. I'm disappointed with the lack of creative ways to save for the gap in retirement savings that comes from one partner leaving the workforce to care for children. What are smart ways to address the loss in earning and retirement savings while a partner is not getting paid for their work? The ideal would be that the working partner could find a way to save enough for the retirement needs for both people while that partner is out of the paid workforce. So there's a solution that we have talked about before, but that isn't talked about enough called a spousal IRA. Hmm. So the deal is if you've got a partner in the workforce, you are also eligible, even if you don't have an earned income, and it does have to be a spouse, you have to be married, you are eligible to make a full contribution to an IRA or a Roth IRA. And you have to set it up yourself. They're the human resources department, although I love the idea of human resources doing this for you, mm -hmm. can't do this for you. The spouse who is at home actually has to do it for themselves. Mm -hmm. But HR departments are masters at communication. And you know, set up some sort of a missive that tells people, hey, this is a solution and push it out to people when you know that they've had a baby or that they're taking leave to care for an older parent or taking leave for any other reason. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing that you may want to think about doing for people who aren't maxing out their 401k or other workplace plan contribution mm -hmm. is to just suggest that at the time when you know one partner's taking a step back. And for back to the spousal IRA, how much? A full contribution? Full contribution. So same yep. as the other limits? 5500 for... Wow, that's fantastic. 6500 if you are 50 or over. We don't Catch hear, up contributions. We don't hear about those enough. No. No, but they exist. They exist. Okay. We'll do one from Yasmin. I am 21, soon to be 22, and I only now got away from restaurant jobs and have a full-time job that pays well and has a 401k. I'm a young adult that is already striving to invest and save money, but I just got into this stage. I'm not sure where to start. Living paycheck to paycheck makes it hard to save, and I'm trying to see other ways I can invest outside of a 401k, which is at 3% right now. As a young adult growing into this adult life, where is a good place to start? I hear that low-index funds are a great place to start, but I am having trouble help. So first of all, 22. I know. <laughs> I was, I was working 22. for you at this age, and I, didn't, I, I wasn't even in this mentality. So she's got the right attitude. She is really good. Yeah. At 22, you are doing everything yeah. right. The only thing that I would do is to try to bump up that 401k contribution. Don't even worry about going outside your 401k. 401ks have the advantage of being the easiest way to invest on the planet because the money comes right out of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. So you just elect to bump up that 3% to 4% or 4% to 5% or whatever you can handle. And you can do it slowly. You can do this over time and then just let the money come out. And when it comes to what to do with that money in the 401k, low cost index funds are a great 
solution, a target date retirement fund that will take more risk on your behalf while you're younger and less risk as you age is also a good way to go. Okay, great. And we'll do one more for Madeline. My husband and I are moving out of state to a much more expensive area. We're selling the condo we currently own and have been in for almost five years. We will likely make a large profit in the sale, but not quite enough to put a down payment on an apartment in the city we're moving to. We want to hold on to that money for a couple of years while we save aggressively to buy again. So my question is, what's the best thing to do with a chunk of money you know you'll need in two to three years? My initial instinct was a high interest online account or a CD since they're risk-free and predictable, but I'm sure there's something I haven't thought of. Nope. You're right. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what I would do with a large chunk of money that you know you're going to need in two years. Two years is far too short a window to take any sort of risk in the market. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I'm not sure of is how large a chunk of money you're actually talking about. So you want to keep your eyes on FDIC protection, which is $250,000 per person per account. Mm -hmm. So if it's an individual putting that much away, if you've got more, you want to split it between two banks or you want to put another person's name on the account, which doubles the protection to 500. Okay. Well, great. Thank you everyone for your questions. And thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. You may have read reports about how women now outnumber men in college and collect more college degrees and how a rising share of women earn more than their husbands. The result is that some men are now taking on more responsibility at home. But that doesn't mean that yesterday's expectations of how a man is supposed to be the primary source of household support have disappeared. They have not. According to a Pew Research Center survey, 7 in 10 adults said that in order for a man to be a good husband or partner, it was very important that he be able to support his family. Only about 3 in 10 adults said the same thing about women. If this sort of expectation is causing conflict between you and your partner, or as sometimes happens, extended family members who feel they have a right to weigh in, which by the way, they do not, here's my suggestion. Close ranks. Try slowly adjusting the expectations the two of you have of each other and the roles you're taking on as a result and deal with that housework issue head on. Men are doing more to help out around the house, but still not as much as their wives. And when women feel that imbalance, the relationship tends to suffer. To try to make sure there's a balance, make a simple list of responsibilities each person has to accomplish around the house, like Who takes out the trash? Who pays the bills? Who gets the groceries? Giving more responsibility to the spouse who is not as swamped at work. It's an art. It's not a science. But if the two of you are equally committed to working on it, it's my opinion you'll find a way to make it work better. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Stephanie Rule for the fantastic conversation and to Kelly Hultgren for bringing us the mailbag. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest and we'll talk soon.